I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Happy New Year. It's Thursday the 5th of January and this podcast is late. So apologies if you've been waiting for one since Tuesday, since the regular release date. I was on a bit of a mad trip between Christmas and New Year. So I was in Japan for two shows. I played in Tokyo event, which is an extremely fun party. And then I took the train up to Hakuba, which is a ski resort north of Tokyo, right in the middle of nowhere. I hadn't been there before and it was absolutely beautiful up there actually. Loads of snow. Didn't have enough time to go skiing unfortunately, but I played a really cool little place called Concrete, which turned into a bit of a chaotic party due to a bunch of um, enthusiastic Italians who were on holiday there. And they turned it into a bit of an Italian rave, which was a lot of fun, I have to say. But the next morning I had to go straight back to Narita Airport get on a plane via Vancouver to Toronto, which was roughly a 24, 25-hour trip door-to-door. So I got to Toronto on the 30th, even with the 30th, and then on the 31st on New Year's Eve, I played at Subdivision all night long, open to close, which was extraordinarily enjoyable. I really had a good time. I think everyone there had a good time too. We brought in the new year. Yeah, I played the Big Ben chimes like a cheesy wedding DJ, <laughs> I said on Twitter. Did that at midnight and then, yeah, just played all kinds of different stuff, really. Some house, some disco, some uh, bassy sort of stuff. And then last couple of hours, just hammered out with techno. And it was just, yeah, lots of fun. Everyone had a good time, including myself. But that meant I got back to mine on the 2nd of January in the evening. I was absolutely knackered and I've only just surfaced really. So here I am doing the intro to this pod and it's a great episode. I recorded it before Christmas. So I'm going to sound a little bit different probably on the mic, but it's with DVS1, who is just one of the best techno DJs in the world. And we obviously we talk about his DJing and his producing and his uh, parties that he's been running for many, many years. But 
most importantly to the conversation is his A-Slice project. So he explains what it is and goes into detail during the conversation, of course, but just for people who don't know about it, basically it's a way, a mechanism that they've devised for DJs to give part of their DJ fee to the producers whose music they've played during their DJ sets. It's essentially a really well-designed, elegant solution for that, basically. And it reflects the fact that the money is disproportionately allocated to DJs over the producers whose music they play. And we all know that, and we all kind of acknowledge it, but what they've done with that project is just devise a solution. And it's completely voluntary. I do it. So if you check my Twitter feed, you'll see occasionally there's a thing that goes up says I donated to X amount of producers who I played at a given show. And it's just something which I think is a really important thing to do. If you're a busy DJ making tons of cash, as it's very possible to do as a DJ, because as we talked about on the show before, the business model for DJing is just an extremely efficient way of making money in music. But if you're honest with yourself... In that position, you owe some money to the producers who made that music that you're playing. So I'm just a big fan of it generally. And I think it's a great thing that they've done as a team. And DVS1 is a great frontman for it, as you will find out, because he, yeah, he talks about it in a compelling kind of a way. So before we get started, leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. We've been going for a year now. This is episode 52. You can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. Follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we talk about on the show. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. There's a great community of people there discussing what we talk about on the podcast and other things too. So, without further delay, here is DVS1. DVS One, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've got obviously a bunch of things to talk about. I feel like we should start with Ace Slice, though, because Let's I mean, uh, this is the um, this is the thing. This is the important thing that needs to be up front, right? Because people need to know this. So no doubt you've um, had to explain this many times, but just just let's just assume that the listener has zero knowledge of what this thing is to get started. Can you? Yeah, give us give us uh, give us an overview of what you've built here. I mean, a slice is ultimately in the simplest form. It's an easy button for people to do something good for their community. You know, it's a it's a way for working DJs like me, like you, and a lot of our colleagues uh, to press an easy button and give a little bit of our earnings back to equalize uh, the greater community. I mean, we we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the music we play. And uh, regardless of our skills or our marketing ability or whatever whatever we might do to have, have made it to this level, uh, we play a lot of other people's music. And over time, uh, producers have lost their earning ability. They're just not making a lot of money. And it's been getting worse and worse over years. And during the pandemic, I found a way to potentially try to lift them up a little bit and if we're getting paid to pay to play other people's music, it only makes sense for us to maybe give back or consider a way to give back some of that earning um, fairly to all the people whose music we play. Okay, so when you say you figured out a way of doing it, 
Um, can you give us a little bit more detail on, on, on that side of things? Yes, yes. So, okay, in technical terms, we figured out a way for to make it really easy for a DJ to upload a playlist file, which is just a simple data file. And uh, that data file then gets sent to our system. Uh, we built this machine learning technology plus human intervention. And we go through and we're able to, and, I, and I'm not boosting any results when I say this, but we're able to match 99% of the music in the playlist that's sent to us. So in that data, uh, we match it. If it's something that's released, we link it to um, a public link in our database that proves the track is, you know, this track by this producer. Uh, if it's unreleased, we use our best judgment of who sent the playlist to us, what genre they're in. Uh, if we can find that person potentially online and kind of use our judgment that, okay, they're also a techno artist. This is a techno DJ. We, we can 99% accuracy say that this is an unreleased track by the right artist. We match it. And ultimately let's make it simple. Let's say you upload a hundred tracks and you give a hundred dollars. Every track would get a dollar evenly across that playlist minus some stipulations of rules of, you know, if you play your own music, you don't get to pay yourself. So that money gets dispersed to the rest of the list. Um, if you're doing a remix, it gets split 50, 50, but ultimately we found a way to distribute that money back down the line to the artists. And if they're registered in a slice, they get daily notifications that their track was played by a DJ at this venue. Uh, they get accounting statements. They get paid out once they hit a certain threshold. If they're not in our system, uh, we go chase them. Uh, we've been chasing people on social media, letting them know that they have money waiting in our system and all they have to do is just come register. Yeah. Um, from from using myself, I have to say it's a, it's an extremely elegant solution that you guys have, have built there. And um, and I think that, I mean, just sort of conceptually, it really makes a lot of sense. Now, I guess there's a, there's a, I mean, there's a bunch of questions I've got for you, actually. So, I mean, just in terms of like the actual overall aims for it, obviously the backdrop for this is the sort of the relative decline of the value of recorded music. I mean, that's like, say, the direct value of it. Um, and, you know, in a, I guess the backdrop is that, that it, once upon a time it was possible for, a, for someone to make dance music and, and not have to DJ. And I, and I guess, um, do you see a time where that returns? Do you think that's possible? I mean, that's a good question. You know, it's uh, just to put it in context for anyone who's going to be listening to this. It's like 20 years ago, a record that sells 300 copies now probably could sell 3000 copies 20 years ago. And 3000 copies of something is a decent paycheck. And if you're a regular studio producer sitting at home working on music and you can release a record every couple months um, and you're selling three to 5,000 copies, which is not a hit even 20 years ago, it's just a reasonable sales, <clears throat> that could pay your rent, that could pay your bills, that could allow you to quit your job and focus on music and become a master at that. And then at some point all these things switched and you had to tour, you had to be a DJ uh, and then once you're on the road, maybe you're, maybe you didn't want to be a DJ. Maybe you're actually not good at being a DJ. I hate to say that, but maybe you're flooding the market now with more mediocre DJs instead of people that are able to sustain a living, becoming masters at their craft of being producers. So 
Unfortunately, I think, I don't know if it'll ever go back to that heyday, but I think every possible revenue stream that we can generate for our community, it's like a domino effect of positive um, things that end up happening. I mean, if more producers could, like, let's say we look at DJs who are maybe even complaining privately that there's too many DJs now. Everyone wants to be a DJ. Well, imagine if we could take care of some of these people who are producers that they didn't need to flood the market and take up, let's call it space in the DJ world. They were happy to stay producers, earn a living or earn some income from it. It would already benefit one in that direction. On the other hand, we would get a lot better music. I think a higher quality of music because producers would have more time to master that skill of being solely producers. So I think adding this other revenue stream just helps. I mean, like, we can all argue about Spotify forever and the pennies they pay. Um, we can talk about, you know, releasing on other people's labels and the 50-50 splits that we do. All these things. Just having an additional revenue stream. I don't think A-Slice is going to, you know, uh, buy you a million dollar house. But is it going to add to your potential earning? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question, actually. Uh, which related to actually um, when you guys first were pitching this before before the rollout, there was an amazing statistic that you that was part of the the kind of slide deck that you were sort of pitching at people, which was to do with the top heavy nature of the the DJ market generally. And I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was something ridiculous, like the top ten DJs account for some <laughs> unbelievable share of the, the, the total DJ market. Do you remember what that statistic was off the top of your head? You know, I'm going to, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sitting here and I can, <laughs> I can probably find it, but I, it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It was like, like of the, 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 the $1.1 billion market. Like, I think it was like a quarter of it was literally being earned by the top 10, you know, or the, by that top percentage. So it, it's kind of insane how how crazy that scale is of who makes i mean i hate to say but it's like another example of like the one percenter you know that we hear about the 99 the rest of us and the one percent that exists in the dj world as well like or in the electronic music scene it's there's a one percenter out there that is holding most of the wealth uh and the rest of us are are splitting up the the balance you know yeah i mean lots of this interconnects right and um one of the topics that i've got down to talk to you about is uh, the dot well, the increasing dominance of, of festivals and festival fees and those kind of outlandish levels which obviously contribute to that uh one percenter kind of element to, to the marketplace but let's just stick it on this for for a for a moment we've got a fair bit more to go on i, I wanted to ask actually yes did you have any well if did you have you had well okay have you had any pushback on Go this ahead. and if so what was the nature of that pushback or i guess kind of skepticism because on paper yeah, yeah. this seems like a just a no-brainer right so tell me about the kind of skepticism that you've encountered okay so so we were crazy enough that we spoke to you know like i think it was like four or five hundred artists directly whether it be through those presentations that you attended or even like one-on-one -on -one calls. And I would say of all the people that we, you know, reached out to and contacted, you know, I had the, the first couple, I'm going to call them uh, crypto bros, 
who uh, were like, oh, are you guys involved in crypto or, or blockchain? And I would say, no, we're not actually. I don't want to talk to you then. So those were the easy pushbacks. Those are the ones I was like, okay, great. Uh, I guess I'll see you later. Um, but I would honestly say that except for maybe three or four of the 400 that I spoke to, nobody really gave us pushback because I hate to say, but like, unless you fundamentally don't believe in the idea of helping others, um, what can you really say about this? You know, I'm by no means going to get rich from this. Uh, I'm losing a lot of money every month funding this myself. Um, so this isn't about, uh, a get rich scheme quick for somebody else. This is about helping a community and, Anyone else, I would say they would ask questions, maybe those four people who push back of the 400 really without, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to name who they are, but I have a feeling actually their pushback was their own greed. And it was just asking questions to find every excuse they could not to do it. And in the end, I had an answer for every one of their questions. So their choice is actually very personal to them, you know, and I'm, as a person, I, I, of course I have some judgment, but as a company, uh, from the company perspective, like four out of 400, I can deal with those odds. That's really not, that's really not anything that scares me away from doing this project. And, you know, I think a slice is such a big new thing to grasp that it's going to take some time. Like the first people that are going to come to us are just literally going to be the fundamentally, the people who just want to do a good thing. They want to do the right thing. And like I said, we're giving them an easy button to help a community, their community. I think there's going to be some people who come to us a year from now and are going to be like, Oh, you know, I really, I'm starting to see, I've been watching everyone post on social media about it, or I'm seeing the connections people are making. And Oh, I just figured out the social benefit of using this. That's my reason to get in. And then maybe somebody else is going to be like, Oh, I saw your guys promoting this end of year, you know, tax write-off bonus, uh, give to producers and get a tax write-off. You know what? I need a tax write-off. Let me do it for that reason. I, I really don't care why they do it. And it, it's just going to take some time for them to find their reason. And maybe it's one of those reasons. Maybe it's all three of those reasons. Um, but we're just kind of letting this grow organically. We're trying to paint the whole picture for people. And this isn't just a one trick pony. You know, there's so many side effects to using a slice that I think people just need to take a moment to really like grasp all the various things this can touch in their world and then see and understand this actually really benefits everyone in that, in that path, whether it be the person giving the person receiving uh, potentially the collection society information that can be created because of this for even more royalty money. There's so many facets that a slice can touch. It's just going to take some time for people to really understand the whole picture. Yeah. I mean, I think like the challenge is, is getting the take up. Right. And I think that, in, I guess ultimately that's a question of, of marketing as much as anything else, you know, to, to use a, you know, a slightly distasteful way of describing it. But ultimately that's what, you know, it's getting the message out and getting people using it. But it's interesting um, that you mentioned like the, the, the collection society's angle. Can you just expand that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I just wanted to add one thing, like when we talk about like the marketing or how it grows before I jump into the answer about the collection societies, you know, 
my name being in the techno scene is absolutely what opened the early doors for us, right? Like we could write people, say, listen, you know, Zach DVS1 is behind this project. Will you come to this meeting and hear us out? And they would be like, oh yeah, absolutely. And even if they don't know me personally, uh, there's enough that they can look about my reputation or, you know, we're connected by one or two other colleagues that that opened the door. And so right now we're very successful in the techno scene and it's working and we're going to be able to, when we hit one year, kind of expose a little bit more information to the public of how well it has worked in that community. The real true challenge for us is how we grow outside of that community because in the drum and bass scene, nobody knows me. In the EDM scene, nobody knows me. In the trance scene, nobody knows me there. So A-Slice has to stand on its own two feet based on its own reputation of its own success without my name attached to it. And that's where the line that we're just starting to cross now because we've got some time under our belt. We've got some results we can show people. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of all coming. Okay, now to jump to your question, the PROs and collections. So when I set out to do this project, I actually never took into consideration and never really thought about at that moment how this could affect the greater money that we're all missing inside of collection societies. And just to paint the picture of a collection society, because we've also often been compared to one, or they're like, why do we need to add you in the chain? We already have collection societies. Collection societies don't work for our community. That's a fact. And if you do a little research, everyone can kind of start to find that out. Our venues and our clubs pay collection societies tens of thousands of dollars. In a lot of cases, most clubs pay 30 to 40 grand a year to open their doors under the premise that that money is going to go back to the community of music that's played in that club. But there are no adequate... Um, listening devices. There's no adequate documentation. There's nothing reporting the data from these clubs or venues back to these collection societies and then getting us our money. So what we've started to do is, uh, this came a lot quicker than we thought, but a, a couple collection societies actually approached us when they saw our media launch and they saw our impact and they said, listen, we would love to start talking to you guys. And actually, we're about a month away, uh, hopefully right into the new year, where we're going to be announcing that we've made partnerships with uh, two or three PROs. I'm going to leave them nameless for this one yet because we haven't signed the papers. Um, but they're going to start accepting data from us. So imagine if we get a playlist from you know this venue in this country, we're going to have a direct way to now report that playlist to that collection society. And if you're on that list and your music is registered, not only are you going to get paid through A-Slice from the DJ directly, but you're also going to get an additional payment from that royalty com collection society that you're registered with. Because now they actually have data, right? Money that you should have got in the first place, but but weren't because of it, it already yeah. it already should have been yours. Yeah. But there was no way to prove it. And, and what's really scary is like the more we've talked to these collection societies, we didn't really know how to how to um, how to value how many playlist a slice is getting compared to the other parts of the world that collect playlists. Which the only other people that would collect that information is collection societies. The more we talk to them, we're starting to understand that like some of the biggest collection societies in the world are probably getting less than 100 playlists a year in total. Wow. 
Now just do the math and think about that. Like, and again, I'm trying to leave them nameless because I don't want to throw them all under the bus because some of them might end up being our partners and work with us in the future. But we're talking collection societies for countries of millions of people are getting 100 playlists or less a year. A slice is already in the thousands of playlists that we've been collecting. So we're starting to see the big picture that what we're actually doing can make a major impact in that area that people just kind of don't pay attention to. And there is literally hundreds of millions of dollars that should be going back into our community that instead is getting paid out to like top 100 artists like, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce are getting, uh, DVS won money and they shouldn't be getting my money. I should be getting that as a producer. Yeah, know? let's let's just let's just clarify that for the for the sort of casual listener. Um like cuz cuz that's that's something which is often talked about but never really kind of like explained properly. Like so money which doesn't get dispersed accurately goes into a pot essentially, right? And then and that pot disproportionately goes to the most successful artists, right? Yeah, so the the, the way I mean the way they judge that is like you always hear about this uh MRT technology, which is these black boxes that live in clubs. And that's the one argument we always get uh, when I bring up a slice somewhere or when I spoke on a couple panels. And, uh, and I point out to people that those boxes reading those songs in clubs are less than they're in less than 1% of clubs around the world. And that technology's already existed for like over a decade. Now, if you look at like, let's say the UK, those boxes are not in underground clubs. They primarily live in top 40 mainstream clubs. So they take a sample of what they listen to in that club and then they literally claim, well, that's what that must be what's being played all around the, the country. So then in that top 40 club, like again, using Jay-Z and Beyonce, uh, they might be played in that club. So then they assume that Fabric is also playing Jay-Z and, and uh, Beyonce. And so is uh, uh, Fold and all these other clubs that are paying in when none of that music is being played there. So what happens is all of our money gets put in the big pot. At the end of the year, two years, they say, ah, we, we don't know where that money goes from fabric or from fold. So you know what? We're just going to go ahead and give it to the top 100 chart that we've listened to in this mainstream club. And that's our sample size for dance music. It's, it's completely false. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy when you hear it spelled out like that. I mean, it really is. So let me, let, let me ask you about the collection sizes themselves. And yeah, let's, let's keep them nameless because obviously we want to give them the opportunity to, <laughs> to create what they're doing. But why do you think there is this level of, um, I don't know what the word, right word used to use is, a charitable word, I don't know. Um, why is this the devil of kind of like, I don't know, ineptitude in, in doing their jobs properly? Let's not be charitable. Um, is it just is it just because it like it never caught up to, to underground music? Like we're 30 years deep or so in this. And was was it just never built in? To those organizations? Yeah, I mean, I mean, collection societies were created for the purposes of a time when we had bands that would go play a set and they would have a set list of, of what music they played. They would submit that to the venue and then that they would get paid for their own royalties ultimately for performing that concert. So then the other part of royalties and collection is radio, TV, commercials, uh, you know, 
basic broadcasting out in the world. If you're walking into a store and there's music playing there, they have to pay for those rights. Okay, those are all simple places. But the problem is, yeah, that in the 40 years of our DJ world, those companies never seemed to create a solution for our world. Now, maybe in the big picture, we're very small in their percentage. Like, let's say they collect, you know, half a billion dollars and the the electronic music scene maybe of of that is a I don't know a quarter of it or or ten percent of it maybe it's just not a big enough issue that they see they need to fix it but I think the bigger problem is they've existed for so long without anyone challenging them uh, that they're able to just continue to play this game and all we see as a community is like one artist complain about it every once in a while you know maybe a label say something uh, a club say something. But in the general picture, nobody as a group has ever has the legal ability, the motivation, the money uh, to go challenge them. And like that's something that we've realized with A-Slice is as people sign up, we're building a database of users that are artists, that are musicians. Some have their music registered, some don't. But imagine if now we can start to challenge those existing systems with 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, or 100,000 users, we might be able to actually pressure some change. Like, just to give you an idea, uh, as we're doing research into, you know, collection societies while developing A-Slice, like ASCAP in the U.S. was sued by the actual U.S. government in the 70s for monopolizing um, and not using their funds appropriately. And since that lawsuit, literally has to be audited by the government every like three or four years on their process. And they're constantly being sued by artists, but they literally just budget millions of dollars for defense lawyers and they win every case because they can fight it. So it's, how do I say, I mean, again, without throwing anyone under the bus, I always describe the collections as they are government enforced legal mafia because the government makes venues pay them but the governments don't enforce them to do their job to get the money back to the right people. So they've just existed in the shadows, making hundreds of millions of dollars. Half of them are nonprofit organizations, yet their CEOs make millions of dollars. So tell me how that one works when we can't even seem to get our money. And we live in an age of technology. These companies are like, again, hundreds of millions of dollars of companies. They, probably have millions of dollars set aside for development and still couldn't develop what I developed with a slice during the pandemic. And I'm nobody, you know, I self-funded this and built technology that does what they should be doing. Yeah. I mean, it's always struck me that they are just way behind, uh, reality. And that's going back to when I first pressed a record like 20 years ago, right? It's like, you know, the payment of mechanical royalties seemed to me then to be anachronistic in the way that it was administrated. And, you know, there just seemed to be just a ridiculous level or a ridiculous lack of transparency in the way it all worked. And what I just realized as you were saying that is that I have no idea what the ownership, ownership structure 
and the way these things are run are. Do you, I mean, can you enlighten me? Yeah, just yeah. personally as well as well as everyone else listening. Like, what? How is this? I mean, who are these people, and and why do they control all this stuff? You know, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Like, the people who work for these organizations, a lot of them are not bad people. This is a job for them. You know, they take home a paycheck. They they do their best job. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, they're not bad people who work for these companies. They're they're the low level people are just like anyone else. They 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 have a job to do. They do their best. They take home their paycheck, and they're just a cog in the wheel. But I think these institutions have existed so long that again, the people behind them. Why would they shake anything up? They're making a lot of money. And a lot of these are hidden behind um, nonprofit organizations. But as we all, anyone who understands nonprofits, the CEOs of a nonprofit can still make millions of dollars. They can still take home bonuses. And so why would they change anything? They're so big, nobody challenges them. Nobody can fight them. Um, And let's be honest too, the world of collections is so confusing. Like I think I understand it because of all the the in-depth kind of knowledge I've had to pick up along the way of a slice but even I still don't understand even my publisher who's been in the game for 25 years can't really fully explain a lot of things to me because neighboring rights uh, performance rights uh, this right that right writing right you know credentials mechanicals I mean there's so many facets to this that are so confusing and the reality also is a lot of artists at our industry in the techno scene or house scene or whatever, like single individual producers, they're not working with a band. They're not working with a big company. They're just making music they love. They're starting labels. They're giving it to other labels. Half of these p- people don't even register their music because they don't see a point because that system takes money from them and doesn't give them anything back. So that's also part of the big thing that we've been discussing with these PROs is like, look, the, our, our community doesn't trust you guys and you know that they don't trust you. So maybe we can get some trust back in you if you work with us, because then we can share with the community that their information will get paid out, which will then in turn motivate them to register their music and that's what you guys ultimately want as a collection society is you want every artist to register their music in those territories so that you as an organization have a job to do and uh, and look like you're growing so we're trying to sell them on this is a win-win for everyone yeah but they're they're a mess they're a mess <laughs> no they absolutely are yeah and i think i mean it's it's basically um like a, a legacy of a, like uh, a way of kind of statutory. Well, there's there were kind of statutory statutory requirements that were that were established sometime in the early to mid twentieth century to regulate like physical record sales, basically. And the whole system hasn't really been updated to reflect the changing nature of the way people listen to music. And and you can see that by the fact that when you release a music when you release a track digitally, they still talk about mechanical royalties, right? And for anyone who's not aware of what mechanical royalty is, a mechanical royalty is something that you your uh, royalty you're supposed to pay for every physical copy of that piece of music that you manufacture. Yeah, exactly. So when the so when you're in a position where digital music is still referred to in that terminology, you just you know that this is something that has to have been updated ages ago or should have been updated ages ago, right? 
I mean, I, I won't, I won't even say which collection society, but recently we had a meeting with one and they were describing producers as DJs because they actually didn't understand what a DJ and what a producer is. And I'm like, you're in charge of the DJ department and you don't even understand the difference between a producer and a DJ. So their systems are antiquated. We're not their goal to fix because we're not their biggest money makers, but still in the big picture, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Like the, I, I think, um, you know, like we, we published something on our Instagram for a slice and it was a, a cover story by NPR about how like, you know, four or I can't remember how many streaming platforms were holding like $440 million in money that they didn't know where to pay out or how to pay out. Now, if you think about that, in a streaming site, you have listed the track and the artist. It's not like it says unknown, right? So you're telling me that they can't figure out where that money goes? Well, half of it is because they claim that money's not registered with, or those tracks aren't registered with any collection society. But let's say they're not registered. They're still somebody's music, right? And we live in an age of technology. Spotify makes you know hundreds of millions. So does uh, Apple Music and all these other places. Why couldn't they create a system that finds people, notifies them on social media, just like we do at A-Slice, and say, hey, you have some money waiting. Your music's been being played on our site. Let's go through and uh, approve you and uh, verify who you are, and let's get you your money. Why couldn't they do that? Because they don't want to. They don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess the incentive just isn't there, right? And But it's crazy to talk about them, you know, like the kind of money-making aspect of of those societies because they're supposed to be doing something, well, they're supposed to be executing a, what is essentially a government function, right, which is like administrating. Well, but that's the thing. They're not gone. That's the thing, though, is that they're, they're enforced by the government, but they are not the government entity. They are literally private. Uh, they're, they're mostly private uh, charitable foundations or whatever set up as charities. Uh, but sure, but that's... Like but then, what, a, what, what, go on, sorry, yeah. No, I was going to say, like, I spoke on a panel at ADE uh, with a group of people from collection societies around Holland, some music lawyers, uh, some music technology people. And I tried to remind everyone up there as they were all mindlessly talking about, uh, you know, how good of a job they're doing. <laughs> I was like, hey, guys, remember, you work for us. Right. Like, let me let me take my A slice hat off and say something as an artist. Everyone up here on this panel, you work for us as artists. Like, don't forget your mission. Your mission is to get artists paid. So stop patting yourself on the back because there's obviously an entire market that you are not taking care of and you are not forwarding in its technology or in your purpose. So I think all of us also need to remember that the companies, we have some choices in this world now, you know, like uh, we need to choose who we support, who supports us and actually put our money where our mouth is where in those directions, you know? So these collection societies at the moment, a lot of them don't have our best interest in mind. So wh why are we just accepting that they're okay to do what they do? Yeah. I mean, the reason I was kind of relating it to government is because ultimately what they're supposed to be doing is executing the legal right of the, the, intellectual property rights holder right i mean like you're supposed to get paid in this way because that's the law right and for some reason that has been contracted out over time you know to to these large institutions which have acquired 
I guess, a momentum of their own and sort of interests of their own, as big institutions always do, right? And lob and lobbyists of their own, no, no doubt, and all all that all the stuff that comes comes with that. Um, okay, we've got slightly off the point here, but I think it's it's a, what is what's amazing about this is an amazing side effect of what you guys are doing because, um, you know, the whole efficiency of payments across the entire ecosystem for artists is is just not anywhere near what it should be and it's interesting that you mentioned the crypto thing and obviously like the the wind has very much gone out of the crypto and kind of web3 sales as we're speaking right now there's all kinds of shit going down with that that we don't need to discuss but one of the things one of the great things, or the, the or the great thing that always struck me about crypto, and I've said this many times on the show, is the potential for automatically executing contracts. You know, and 100%. the um, yeah, music contracts are, must be amongst the least respected in the entirety of the economy, right? <laughs> Just how yep. accurately they are paid out on, and how how seriously they are taken. You know, and I spend a lot of time talking to new artists about how important it is to have a contract for something that you do, whether it's a recording contract or a publishing contract or whatever. You know, and the potential for all of that side of things to be made automatic, I think, is just amazing. And you know, I think what you guys are doing, whilst it's not, you know, it's it's not on the blockchain or whatever, and like, you know, <laughs> probably less people would turn up their noses at that now as they would have done a, a year ago. <laughs> now that everyone's lost all their money in that in that uh, sector, but I think like you know the, the potential there for um, for real change and real you know just increased efficacy of all this stuff is is really significant. And what, I mean, what do you think about the whole blockchain thing generally? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just gonna say, you know, the only reason we didn't go deep into blockchain it's not because of my doubt or disbelief in the technology. I think the technology of blockchain is amazing. What I didn't want to do is I didn't want to put a barrier in between my users to get into a slice and start using it and make payments. Right. So, you know, everyone's the, the first thing that we could have done with blockchain was the payment system. And the reason why we stayed out of that was because let's be honest, you know, even though we assume DJs and producers are technologically advanced, they're not. And so uh, a lot of them don't know what a wallet is. They don't know how to set up a wallet. They haven't set up a wallet yet. So if let's say we had to put a barrier of you have to set up a wallet, put money in it to be able to pay people to get instantaneous payments out. I think we would have lost 95% of the people that we already have. So we chose, like, let's keep it analog for now. Let's use PayPal. Let's use credit card, bank transfer, things that all of us already have to live the current life we have. I'm already talking privately with a few blockchain people about how to create a fourth option for us now and initiate being able to use the blockchain for payments. And that will probably happen sometime in the next year with A-Slice. It won't be our sole way in, but it'll now be an alternative option for people who do want to live on that ecosystem. And I think it's great. And then in terms of blockchain technology for contracts, for information, those things are absolutely amazing but they're still too advanced. Um, so we were able to develop this, get this to market and put this out in a working, you know, public beta and a private beta before that in a matter of that year to two years that 
we've now been working on this project. To me, getting this out in the world now before the pandemic, like we got this out just as the pandemic was, let's say, coming to a halt, kind of. I mean, I guess we're still there, but it, it's it's mostly, you know, clubs are back open. And we were like, look, we, we need to get a working thing out to the world. We need to educate people on a new process in what they do as DJs or how they work as producers. And then later on, we can always adjust. We can always change. We can always add more features. But I, I, I met so many people starting blockchain innovations during the pandemic, and I have yet to see their product come out now. And it's now been three years since I spoke to them. And so to me, I think we made the right decision. It, it's not anything against those technologies or those ways. It's a matter of uh, being open to them in the future as they become relevant, as they become normal, and as we filter out all the the bad players or the bad actors uh, in those sectors, because there's hundreds of them, you know, and everyone's seeing that right now with uh, certain coins and, um, you know, certain... Yeah, and certain people who just like they they stole everyone's shit or they made everyone lose everything because they were following them blindly. So we didn't want to jump into that pool and be at risk. So I, I think we started with stable things people know, they trust, and then we can keep growing as we need to and as we find the right people to partner with. Yeah, I mean, that was very obviously the right call. Um, I think that... <laughs> I think so. I think, I think we were right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole the whole crypto thing is is, is pretty mad in well in, in its current situation anyway. Um, you know, as we've just been talking about, there's huge potential there. But mm, yeah, so okay, let me let me get back to something you were saying previously about the volume of DJs and the quality of music. Like you, well, you said like it seems like everyone's a DJ now, and part of the reason for that is because it seems like a career, and you know just the you know the the like the total market's grown massively, albeit with the caveat you know, as as we mentioned that a, a ridiculous amount of that market is going to a very small number of people. But I mean, how do you feel about? Let's look at sort of technology generally and and the way. Sort of DJ ecosystem has moved on in the last twenty years, and this this actually also applies to the making of music too. And this is a sort of related area. But I mean, as someone who is, I don't know how I don't know if this is fair, but as someone who strikes me as being quite old school, is that is that a reasonable way of describing your outlook on DJing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yes, yes. I mean, there's a lot of ways to define an old school DJ, but yeah, give me give me something specific of my of what you perceive as my opinion on something, and I'll tell you if it's right. Well, I mean, okay, so, uh, well, well, I mean, you, I, I'm fairly sure you don't, or you don't play vinyl anymore exclusively, but you certainly have you take that element take that kind of element of dj heritage very seriously is that fair to say i, I mean I, I think i treat my digital djing from a vinyl perspective you know like uh the way i the i i take i take my experience as a vinyl dj and consciously or unconsciously i bring that into what i do with digital music how i pick music how i categorize music how i play music um yeah there's something in that that kind of follows into what i do now okay and and as I said, going back to what you were saying about like the, I guess the financial incentives of going to DJing versus producing and, and, and also the incentives to spend more time 
on DJing and more time out gigging as opposed to in the studio working on all that. I mean, do you think that... Well, think, well, think, think about the perception. Yep. Think about the perception of like what everyone sees because of social media is DJs being on pedestals, right? They, they're living the good life. They're flying around. They're, they're hands in the air, heart signs to everyone, you know, vi- posting their videos on Instagram every week and every night. Uh, so, of course, everyone wants to be them because uh, the producer videos are, are, are uh, an artist isolated in their studio in a dark pit making a kick drum for hours and hours on end. What's the glory in that, you know? But they don't understand that that DJ wouldn't be filming that video unless that producer was making that music. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. So which one, so which one do these kids want to be? They end up wanting to be the DJ and everyone ends up wanting to be a DJ. And you get all these companies promoting how easy it is to DJ now and DJ schools and sync buttons and we'll pick your tracks in key for you and tell you which one to play next. I mean, uh, the DJ world couldn't seem like an easier place to be a rock star and make a bunch of money than it is now. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I agree with all of that. I I would kind of argue that it's also the same in the production world. I think that t- technology has, and 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 to be clear, I'm not saying that uh, the kind of riches are on show in anywhere near the same way as as they are for DJs. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, nothing I've said on the on the show before. Not many things wind me up more than the DJ in a private jet selfie. Oh yeah. But but at the same time, like the it's it's so easy. And this is another phrase phrase that I've used. Uh, many times so apologies to regular listeners but it's so easily it's so easy now to make a track which is good enough yeah. to play in a DJ set right. and to me that's a bit of a problem I think and I've I've asked this question on a few people I do there is a kind of range of attitudes there. So, so how do you see that I mean, I agree. I, I think I think if we look at uh, the promo campaigns that we all now get as DJs, there is so much cookie cutter music out there that's just good enough, right? It, it, it's produced well. It sounds good. The kick drum's big. The the chords are nice, <clears throat> but it's all very replaceable music that seems to be like, oh, I'll play it once maybe twice and then it'll disappear into the ether and I'll find something else that's good enough and play it again. And I think coming from leading back to what you asked about the vinyl thing, like coming from a vinyl background, I I was taught to dig for my music. So uh, I want a unique sound. I want something that I'm playing that not everyone else is. So I'm, I'm, I'm staying digging for things, finding things, editing things. But Yeah, there's so much cookie cutter stuff that's just good enough that fills these promos or fills our inboxes. But everyone's getting the same promos. Everyone's getting the same emails. So everyone starts to sound the same. And uh, and there's a lot of, you know, again, with technology and everything else, it's very easy to put tracks that are just good enough into a DJ set that's technically just good enough. And wow, I'm a DJ playing cool music. But is it really anything unique? Is it really anything on a deeper level? Is it really even representative of you? Or is it just good enough, as you said? You know, yeah. I don't even know if that really answers the question, but it's... Uh, yeah, well, here's a, here's a kind of wider question. So um, yeah, we've just been talking for, you know, 45 minutes about kind of improving the efficiency of getting artists paid. But how about improving, yeah. like, the... I mean, and, and during the course Quality of that... Control? Oh yeah, I mean during the course of that you you implied that and I think with some merit that 
um, you know, if people DJs are incentivized to spend more time making music, then that will have a positive effect. And I do agree with that. But is there a kind of wider thing, wider kind of reform possible to kind of push back on these forces of like good enough DJing and good enough tracks? Unfortunately, no, because we're we're too deep into we're too deep into. Um, marketing being a successful point of of like how when was the last time i feel like 10 years ago paul you and i could think about how um there was a few or handfuls of artists that were like really just getting known for their unique vibe and it had nothing to do with their marketing right like we would just hear about talent bubbling up in the underground scene and, and especially as DJs paying attention to records coming out and whatever, you'd be like, oh, have you heard about this producer? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, just I, I saw that last record. And you wouldn't hear about their social media presence. Now we're so deep into social media as like a, a defining thing of somebody's success that I hear less and less about like true emerging talent as much as I hear about true emerging marketing prowess, you know, like. Because you start seeing their face everywhere and everyone's talking about them. But then I'm like, yeah, but they're not talking about their music or their last release or this. They're just talking about, oh, did you see them on Instagram or did you see this or did you see that? It's unfortunately, I I, I fear that we're a little too far in the extreme uh, that I wish more people were paying attention to like true bubbling talent and uh, over any marketing hype because who the hell has time to make really quality music and be a you know 100 successful instagram star you can't do both it's really difficult <laughs> yeah i mean social media is a yeah it's a lot of work frankly that's a whole nother podcast right well yeah no absolutely but i mean you're right you're right to say that it's it does take effort to do it you know it's not it's not just some you know i don't even think it's an easy option necessarily but it's not a music option no. and it's not an artistic option i mean there are in fairness like there are people who do who are genuinely creative with social media i mean then they don't tend to be musicians 100 yeah, <laughs> percent. but you know i mean no and, and there and there's some musicians who are absolutely creative with social media and i mean there's always going to be outliers to our generalized context of what you and i are talking about like when i say you know, oh, social media sucks. Okay, there's some people who use it really well and they're really good and it feels very natural and I'm not judging them. But I'm just judging the overall game of the fact that this is even an issue. Like when you look at ADE or uh, IMS, you know, all these conferences, I mean, half of their panels are about like how to market yourself, how to promote yourself, how to use social media, how to do this. Like they're not, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was about how to produce music, how to talk about your music, how to learn more about music. And now it's how to, how to flash your camera correctly. It's so you can see that the focus is changing because that's even the topics of half of these electronic music get togethers around the world is uh, that direction. And that has nothing really to do with music. It has to do with marketing a career. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. That's right on the button. So, uh, so back in 2019, you you gave an interview in which you talked about, I mean, quite a lot of the same themes here, actually. Like, and the yeah. and the, 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 the kind of tagline was to get the DJ out of the spotlight thing. 
and that was obviously just for the was it was it that school was it the school of house the the thing talking about festivals right yeah yeah interview? that was that was the other aspect yeah, yeah. to it yeah yep. yeah which obviously yep. caught a lot of heat but, but but that was directly before we had two years of enforced inactivity <laughs> yeah. on the road right so i was i wanted to yes. ask you like coming out of that period of inactivity like i mean it strikes me that lots of assumptions lots of the basic assumptions that the people have now have, have have changed and particularly with new people coming in so how do you see the, the points that you made back in 2019 like how do you see those things now have they got better have they got worse have they got you know what are your observations on those things i mean which, which specific point because like you said i talked about a lot of stuff in that interview. right yeah i mean there's, there's a lot of stuff right okay so i guess the first one is festivals and clubs um i still think festivals bring out the worst in our culture unfortunately i i don't i mean i've you know some people like take things so literal like when i gave that interview and i said you know hey i, I think festivals are destroying our culture everyone's like oh you're still playing some festivals of course i am i play 120 or 30 shows a year and if 20 of those are festivals or 15 of them are festivals i mean come on uh you know it's not my whole career now some of the festivals i play are small intimate they're they're amazing but when I step to these big festivals for these 90-minute, two-hour sets, I still stand by everything I said. It's short attention spans. It's me playing the bangers. It's not bringing out the best in anybody. Can it still be fun? Yes, of course it can. But does it do anything to further our uh, understanding or depth or connection uh, musically? I stand by the fact that I don't I don't believe it does. You you're always going to get the exception, you're always going to get some amazing artist doing something really cool. But in general, yeah, I I think it's still the same and even after the pandemic, like I think after the pandemic when we all opened up events, everyone was happy to have whatever they could. But now we're back to having things every single weekend. We're back to multiple shows every night on Friday in most big cities. So you know, does that really need to be rethought? I think it's just as relevant then as it is today. Maybe it wasn't a year ago coming out of the pandemic because it was two years of nothing to something and we were all happy to have something. And I will not argue that in the least. I was happy to have everything I had. But we're back in the flow of things now. So I think we got to pay attention uh, to what's bullshit, you know? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Yeah, I mean, personally, I really worry about clubs and small clubs specifically. 100%. And like just the whole idea of going to a small club. I mean, I think there's a real danger, particularly 
now with the kind of cost pressures that small venues are facing and the changing nature of the way people want to go out and want to spend money and want to kind of express themselves socially like it's a i think it's a big problem and i think it could have a really like i don't know destructive effect over the next couple of years and and I've I've been trying to figure it out myself to be honest, and I don't know whether it's just and it's just a natural result of a, of the sort of changing of the guard, as it were, in terms of a new generation wanting to do something different to what you know the previous one did. And I think and the festivals thing, I think, is is part of that. I mean, funnily enough, I um I watched that uh, Woodstock '99 documentary at the weekend. I don't know if you've seen that. Where um, I haven't seen it, but I, I know the one you're talking about. Right. And that was, I mean, the way it's portrayed, I mean, I, I don't remember that happening at the time. I remember when Woodstock 94 and a mate of mine went to it and had a great time and stuff. But like 99 was very much, it, generally speaking, in the culture, felt like the end of something. And uh, it all felt a little bit like dystopian. And I kind of get that same impression now. You know, I don't as a general kind of mood. I don't know if I'm really being like too far too doomy here, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Though it's like it, if I mean, do you get that feeling with clubs or with festivals or with the culture in general? With the whole thing, it just feels like there's just been uh, this huge bubble. You know what it feels like? It feels like the fucking crypto bubble. You know, it feels like it's just like well, so much shit has just been pumped into it over the course of basically a decade. And well, let me let me, let me try to, to change it. Someone. Let me try to change your perspective then a little bit. The crypto bubble, the crypto technology is so new, right? Five, six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen years maximum. Um, and when it bursts, you know, if it, it feels like the end of the world or whatever it might be. But electronic music, DJs, clubs—I mean, we're going on forty plus years of existing now. So if this bubble bursts, it's not like we're going to stop DJing. It's not like we're going to end. It's going to re—it's going to reset itself in some way. And I'd be happy for a reset. Like last summer, a lot of festivals had to cancel because they suddenly didn't sell the tickets they thought they were going to sell. And they were in panic mode. Well, I'm sorry to all my festival buddies and promoters and everyone who likes going to festivals. I'd be happy if more festivals shut down, honestly, um, because that would make room for more clubs. And what we need to preserve our culture is clubs, not festivals. Like what? Right. Right. The first thing you pointed out was I'm worried about small clubs. Well, small clubs need to operate all year round to survive and they can't take summer breaks and they can't be messed with when a festival in their city takes their whole audience. So I'd be happy with less festivals. You know, I, I, I think it would help our club culture a little bit. Um, so I think it's okay if our bubble breaks, it's okay if it bursts, there's a, you know, yes, there's going to be a change of some guard. I think the pandemic proved that like a lot of our audience of a certain age stopped going out regularly when the pandemic came back. Maybe they were weekly people before, but at a certain age group, uh, pandemic really like stopped them. You don't see them anymore. And there's a whole new generation taking their place that defines this music scene very differently than we did. Uh, and then we do, but I do have faith in the fact that, um, like even with musical certain musical genres that I'm not really feeling that became popular during the pandemic, um, over time those genres will also 
smooth out a little bit or the crowd that goes to those things will smooth out a little bit. Everyone grows up. Everyone gets older. Everyone's tastes change as they mature a little bit to some degree. And I think those things will define where we go next. But like, I'm going to continue to do what I do. You're going to continue to do what you do. And we will have fluctuations in, in uh, the relevancy of what we do. But I think um, we come from enough experience and we come from enough heritage and history that like uh, there's a place for us. It might fluctuate up and down, but there's a place for us. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you there. And you're absolutely right to, to point out the, the existing longevity of it as well. You know, I think it's um, it's almost a bit of a problem sometimes the way we look back on the history of, of dance music. But equally, it's something which is, you know, extremely important. And it's, and it's something which um, has stood the test of time, you know. And there are differing kind of trends that go with things going in and out of fashion, and that's totally fine. And you know, so a lot of the stuff which is popular now uh, was was also popular, you know, thirty years ago. And you know, exactly. but everything is like that, right? Like you know, there are undulations, like you said, to it. I mean, I, I believe. I mean, like especially, and maybe I'm a purist, and maybe this does come from my old school DJ perspective or mentality, but. I, you know, I'm about to celebrate 30 years of throwing parties in two years. And in that 30 years, I've watched class, proper house and techno, proper drum and bass. I hate, even if I'm not into the genre, proper trance, all those things have existed as the backbone of every other hype that comes and goes and comes and goes. And there's been moments where every proper relevant genre um, has fallen you know, a little bit lower, a little bit higher. But like you said just now, it's been around for a long time. So it's proven itself to be able to sustain the ups and downs. And in every up and down, a new wave of people come in, some older ones leave. But I think the the pure versions of all these staple sub or genres, the main genres of our music scene, they exist and they're going to continue to have relevancy and they're going to continue to be inspirational to these new genres that come pop up and uh and maybe dissipate a little bit but of every hype that comes you get a a small group of authentic artists in that hype whether i like those hypes or not it's irrelevant but like uh you know let's say right now in this fast harder trancier stuff that's coming maybe it's not personally what i'm into and when it starts to dissipate at some point, there will be a handful of really authentic and good artists in that genre that will hold their relevancy when everyone else jumps to the next hype that comes. And that's great because that just creates subsets that like need to exist and have a place in the bigger ecosystem. Um, but at moments, they become overblown. Right now, there's a lot of things that are overblown and there's a whole generation that thinks... Um, that is the definition of something. Give them a couple of years and they'll see other things come and go to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. And I always say that, you know, there's in every, any genre of music, there's good examples and bad examples, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the genre is. There's always good music somewhere, <laughs> even if you have to dig pretty deep yeah. for it. You know, there's, there's people who jump on those bandwagons and they jump on the next bandwagon and the next one and the next one and the next one. They're not the ones who are going to stay those relevant artists in that genre. The ones who like are really doing it because they believe it heartfelt. This is, this is represents them. 
as a human being and they play this music, they're the ones who are going to stay relevant in that genre. And the other ones are just going to hop to the next one. So, you know, I, I th it's okay. Like, I don't get scared by all these things coming and going. You know, like uh, when I released this Axis album at the beginning of the pandemic, I got a couple messages from like really young fans like, oh, I really love your music, but aren't you worried about this fast, hard stuff that's coming? I'm like, why? Why, why should I be worried about it? Um, this isn't a competition. Like music is not a competition. I don't need to be scared of anything. Like I am who I am. There seems to be a, a, enough people that like what I do to stay interested in who I am and what I do and support this life that I've been lucky enough to live. So why do I need to worry about what anyone else is doing? Uh, it's not a competition at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. So you mentioned that you're coming up to 30 years of throwing parties. What was the, what was the first party you threw? Uh, so 1996, um, I did a party that was called, basically it was like a Japanese symbols that stood for under the ground. Um, so it was, the party didn't have a name. It was just these three symbols. Um, yeah, and that was that was the first, I guess, unintentional hush party. Uh, you know, like we didn't even have the name Hush yet. We just had like a little pre flyer with a uh, the girls. The early on logo of Hush was a girl with this uh, finger in front of her lips, kind of being like Hush, and it just had a date and a beeper number on it, and that was it. That was the that was the pre flyer, and then we you know threw the party a month later, um, you know, and it was uh, it was amazing. Uh, so was this in Minneapolis? Yeah, that was in Minneapolis. Yeah, right. Um, but you, you didn't, you didn't grow up there, did you? No, I mean, I did. I did. I grew up. Uh, I so I was born in Russia. Came to Minneapolis when I was two years old, two or three years old. Oh, right. Okay, right. You were that. Yeah, young. yeah. I grew. Okay. I grew up in Minneapolis. My father moved to New York when I was five or six. So I grew up like spending my school year in Minneapolis, and then spending my summer, winter, spring breaks in New York. So I kind of got the best of both worlds, got the big city hustle, got the, you know, Minnesota uh, nice life is what Minnesota nice is what they call it. Um, but, you know, like I, I I got to witness my first parties as a fan in Minneapolis and in New York when I was like 15, 16. I kind of got I found a couple parties and I was going to like all age dance nights at a couple clubs and I got lucky. I've said it in other interviews, like I got taken to a really cool party with authentic music. I didn't have to wade through the, the generic stuff to find it, but that was just lucky. That was by chance. I, I, I had no idea the flyer I was grabbing was for a, an authentic musical experience, but I got lucky. And, uh, and then I kind of kept throwing parties big and small. And, um, well, hang on a sec. let me stop you there. What was, what was that party that you got lucky with? That's a great question, actually. I don't even remember. So there was a night at First Avenue, this club. So if anyone likes Prince, the artist, and if you've ever watched the movie Purple Rain, Purple Rain was filmed around a club called First Avenue in Minneapolis. And First Avenue is this legendary club. It's like oh, almost 50 years old now. And First Ave used to do Sunday night dance party. And Sunday night dance party was like an all-ages dance night. And the DJ would play... He was a classic proper DJ. I mean, he would play like five, six tracks of a genre. So he'd play like five, six tracks of, you know, trance stuff, five, six tracks of hip hop, five, six tracks of house. And you could see the crowd like shifting as he's changing the tracks. And and then outside the venue would be the hip hop promoter, the, the techno promoter, the house promoter. And they'd be like, oh, you like house music? Yeah, we got a party this weekend. You know, boom, here's your here's your flyer. 
And I just remember gravitating towards the house and techno flyers because that's what the music that I was drawn to on the dance floor. And then I got taken to, you know, I went to a party and got in and was blown away by the rave scene because the rave scene in Minneapolis in the 90s was really, really authentic and really um, powerful and very secretive. Uh, so I felt like I found the gateway into something, you know, and I felt like just a part of something. It was very cool. That's interesting uh, that you use the word secretive. So were the, were the parties, well, like warehouse parties, like underground parties mostly? Yeah, they were, they were mat point parties. So, you know, like we had a record store in the city or like a, let's call it a rave culture shop. Uh, it was called Synesthesia. And like Synesthesia would, um, you know, the promoters would either sell tickets there or have flyers there. You would go there, get a flyer on a Saturday night. You'd call the beeper number. The beeper number would leave you a message and it would be like, go to this parking lot at this location. <laughs> you know, none of us had uh, Google Maps or iPhone Maps at the time. Yeah, sure. So we're like, oh, okay, the hardware store, 20 minutes outside the city on the north side of the parking lot, you know? And then there would be a person sitting there that would kind of do like, let's say what uh, Sven does at uh, Bergheim door. You know, he looks you up and down, figures out if you're legit and if you're not a cop. And then he hands you another piece of paper that gives you directions to the next location. And the next location is the party. And you get there and, you know, it's an abandoned warehouse. It's a, a farm in the middle of nowhere. It's a a loft uh, back in the city somewhere. But you like, you had to work for it. You know, you had to, you had to discover it. You had to chase it. But when you went there, like you met these like-minded people and those like-minded people became your family. They became your friends. They became your weekly, you know, at that time, the scene was very healthy. There were parties every week, small and big after parties, you know. So, I mean, it was just like a chance to dive into a whole other world because that world was not your typical nine to five Monday through Friday world. It was a group of alternative you know, freaks and rejects uh, like myself who, who like didn't fit into, let's say that weren't interested in the normal part of society. What year are we talking about here? I would say, I mean, so Minneapolis, I went to my first, or I threw my first party in 96. I went to my first party 93, 94. Um, and I was living in Connecticut going to a boarding school in 94 and I was traveling to New York city, going to parties there as well. Uh, sneak, sneaking around my, my parent, my dad at the time. And like, you know, I got a, ch I got a chance with a fake ID cause you could get easy fake IDs in New York. Uh, I, I was able to get into limelight, palladium tunnel. I was able to witness, uh, all those really cool historical clubs of New York well before I even understood what the hell was going on. You know? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember sort of similar experiences, like you say, not really understanding, knowing you liked it and knowing it was cool, but not really quite understanding why, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's not like to the level, like now I, I, I get it. I, I listen to music differently. I, I look at venues differently. But back then it was just like you're opening like a, a door into an alternative universe. You know, it's like bizarro world. And then when you walk out at eight in the morning, you're like, oh, these are the regular people out in the world, you know, and you're walking down the street at 8 a.m. And it's such a, it's such a, I don't know, like just mind fuck experience to hear music, see the visuals, see the people 
experience that culture, especially at that time, because it wasn't in every commercial. It wasn't being played in the background of every clothing store. It wasn't, you know, all over your Facebook pages or Instagram. Like, you really, you discovered something. And that, I'm not trying to diminish the experience that somebody has now, because I still think it can be a very beautiful discovery for somebody. Um, But I really had no idea what I was listening to when I found it, you know? Yeah, and then... What was your what was the development from there? Because I mean, I I talked to like Dubfire about this on the show, and he surprised me by sort of talking up the importance of the British dance press <laughs> around this period, which I just had no idea was uh, had any sort of influence in in the states or in North America. So, what was your sort of journey from like like you know going into like what you've just described to throwing your own party? You know, same thing. I've said this in other interviews, but. I had no idea how far this culture uh, existed. I didn't. I had no idea about UK or Germany or anything and, until I started being interested in DJing and producing, which was fairly quickly in my livelihood in this community. But to me, like I had discovered these parties in Minneapolis, and I was like, "Wow, this is a really cool community." And then I was like, "Oh, I, I need to seek out this community in New York." But the New York vibe was a little bit different than the Midwest. Like, and, and looking back now, I completely understand it. But like, New York was a little more of a tough guy, pretty drugged out, pretty aggressive scene, at least at the time when I found it. Um, but like Minneapolis Midwest was like taking influence from Chicago, from Detroit. Uh, Midwest, I don't know, still has kind of its own little vibe. It also took the influence of its travels. So like when I would go to New York and be influenced by that, I think I would come home and bring back uh, the things that I found interesting in those communities or the aesthetics that I really liked. And I mean, Minneapolis was also a DIY city. So I think within a couple years, I was like, oh, let me throw a party actually. You know, here's my favorite locals that I've been hearing for a few years everyone was very helpful. Like I went to my favorite promoter at the time and I was like, Hey man, I want to throw parties. Uh, what do I need to do? And he's like, all right, here's the, here's the name of the sound company that we all use. Here's the name of the lighting company we all use. Here's the security guys that we all use, make contact with them. Here's a you know ballpark of how to do this. And then you just, whether you know it or not, you're taking your influences. Like for Dubfire, if he mentions the UK scene, Somehow he discovered that scene parallel to his own other discoveries and and it influenced him consciously and unconsciously. Same thing for me. My experiences influenced me and became the aesthetic that I appreciated. You know, like seeing Jeff Mills before I understood what Jeff Mills was or who he was, but still having him blow my mind probably set a seed in the back of my head for something that he represented or something that he presented and that became part of my aesthetic, you know, and then I took that plus my my uh, discovery of Rob Hood or my discovery of Laurent Garnier at the time or tracks from Chicago blowing my mind. Um, you know, all those influences just became my perspective of this. And then as I grew older and older and traveled more and f- discovered California's scene, uh, you know, went to Europe, discovered uh, the UK scene and the German scene and all those things I got to bring back to my hometown and then represent that by doing events or how I set up lights or how I set up sound. 
and here I am. I'm just like a, a sum of all those experiences now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as you were saying that, and and you know, as we were talking about Minneapolis more, Minneapolis more generally, um, what I mean, the question that just popped into my mind was like the the rave scene in in North America really it came together very quick in and I'm talking about kind of rave culture as opposed to the kind of club culture thing yeah we we had we had zero club culture in Minneapolis it was all raves yeah yeah exactly so so I mean do you have a sense of like exactly where well exactly how that happened exactly where that came from because I mean I mean obviously we know where the sort of the, the broad strokes of it, but like specifically, do you have a sense of of what the kind of key like developments were to make you know to, to put this thing in in place, which you know swept you away like this? Okay, so we we never had a club scene early on in Minneapolis because our liquor laws were terrible. You know, everything closed at two a.m. or three a.m. I mean, we had First Avenue. We had a club called the Gay Nineties. Um, where they were house DJs and club DJs that played good music. And if there was no rave, the club kids would go to those two clubs to go dance to house and techno. But in general, our scene existed in the underground because, as we know now, you know we need 6, 7 a.m. closing times for this community because we want DJs to be able to play two, three, four hours and spread out and do their thing. So, I mean, the rave scene in Minneapolis was the authentic option. It was the only option. And um, I mean, I think it succeeded because it was the only option. (laughs) I mean, that was our only option. So you went out and that was the way you experienced it. You experienced it in these, you know, weird spaces, like spaces that weren't meant to be club or music oriented like i saw jeff mills in a strip mall in an empty tanning probably i think it was probably like an like an old tanning place that was gutted out and it was <laughs> wow. two three hundred people and woody mcbride booked him and again i had no idea who jeff really was at the time but he blew my mind and um and then i went to you know huge parties underneath uh our um i think it was an ice arena called excel center and I saw Laurent Garnier and Andy C and like all the, like dope multi-genre parties with the best of the best from those genres, which is also something I miss nowadays, which is like mixed genre events. Um, the rave scene would do that back in the day. Like you'd have a house DJ, a, a deep DJ opening, a proper techno DJ in the middle or like a amazing drum and bass. And I also got to experience it on those big sound systems on these walls of sound, you you couldn't do that in a club setting. Like you, you just could never do that. So my definition of this scene is not from going to clubs. It's from loft parties, warehouse parties, strip malls, um, you know, crazy setups, uh, nothing orthodox about anything of the night. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's the way I envision it. And I think like when people watch these documentaries of like, you know, the acid house scene of, of the UK and, you know, the rave scene of the US, I mean, that was the way our age group experienced that if that was the, the time you were around. So that, you know, like now uh, playing mostly clubs, I love it. And clubs now have a little more style and taste to them. Um, 
but yeah, those rave spots, like you just can't touch that create that, that level of rawness, uh, is, is really amazing. It just creates such cool energy when it's a new place that nobody's ever been to. And tomorrow that place is gone again, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's visceral, isn't it? You know? Oh yeah. It's dangerous. Like there's something dangerous about it. And like, if you can control that chaos, but let it be free, that creates the best energy, like the best vibe, because people are just like, so taking in all their surroundings and like exploring the music, the space, the, the people, the outside, the inside, there's something really mind blowing to that high level of an experience. Yeah. I mean, that element of danger is really something, isn't it? I mean, I remember the first few sort of the first few jungle slash drum and bass events I went to as a young kid in London were, you know, on some level, like pretty scary, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but at the same time, just super compelling. And so like, and you just felt like, wow, this is fucking amazing. I'm a little bit scared, but like, it's just incredible to be here. Right. And, and actually, and I've, and I, again, I've, I've said this before, I had a similar feeling the first time I went to Burkheim. Yeah. Like it, just that little bit of danger, you know, you're not quite sure what's going on here. It's controlled. You know? ca- I mean, Bergheim but, but, is the epitome, at least, I, I, and I know the time frame that was probably your first time there and my first time. It was the epitome of controlled chaos at that time. Like, like you didn't see the security. So you're like, I could do anything in here. And, and then, you know, but you knew you were safe. You kind of felt safe, but you felt in danger at all times and that was amazing you know <laughs> yeah that's it you like, i'm probably safe like the chances are i am safe but there's there's a, there is that like one percent like, yep. like maybe i'm not yep but yeah but that's and that and that is the that's that's the rave right that's the difference between a club and a rave and i've never yeah, actually I mean, thought I mean, about it quite like that before but i think i think that that is it it is i mean uh, you know clubs you you go there week after week they have that security team outside you you kind of have an expectation you know what to expect when you walk in like like i always get bored when i see oh you know uh some promoter or label is doing a, a a night like their label night at a club and they don't do anything different right like you don't walk in the venue and suddenly it's a whole different place it's like oh yeah it's the same club i always go to it's just this specific lineup here but when you add the element of like oh i could walk in here and everything will be different tonight that makes something a little more exciting it just changes something it makes it feel unique and and then add the element of danger and you got a win win yeah yeah 100% 100% so okay let's go back to your parties like um did they go well initially? Like, was it a, uh, was this just a kind of like <laughs> accelerating, uh, process of success? I mean, were there some setbacks? Tell me about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, like I said, I did big parties. I did small parties like in my resident advisor origins documentary, you know, we talked about this first party that I, this first really big party, um, called 420 And, uh, and it was in 1997, it was Electric Indigo, Neil Landstrom, Tobias Schmidt, uh, uh, who else was it? Tim Taylor, you know, all these really cool artists, DJ Slip. And like, that was my big first, like my first really next level big party, a couple thousand people, massive sound system, you know, artists internationally. Like it was a success as a party. I lost a lot of money, but tons of money right. you know but <laughs> okay. but i established my reputation I, I i began my legacy with that 
And um, I think my little first underground parties were okay. That was me testing the water. Uh, but that was like curated by me, designed by me, aesthetics by me. My energy came out a hundred percent in that, in the way that event got translated and that, you know, established myself in, in my city or in the Midwest even. And then, you know, the rave scene. Oh, well, let me, let me, sorry, let, let me just jump in then. Were you always DJing at those parties as well? Yeah. I mean, the yeah actually i was I, I think there was maybe only one or two like small parties that i hosted where i didn't dj um but i would say i probably dj'd at 95 to 96 percent of my parties sometimes openings sometimes you know locals only so i would play a main slot um because not all my parties series were based on headliners like that's actually the beautiful thing about minneapolis uh we don't need headliners. Like people come out and support locals actually. And that's always kind of sustained over the years. I mean, it fluctuates up and down as the scene fluctuates up and down. So my big parties were obviously headliners. Uh, but, but I would also do series of like small after hours spots or, you know, three, 400 person places where it would just be, uh, I invested in sound systems early on. So I had my sound, I had basic lights and I would just book locals and do, you know, $5 entrance parties. And that's just like supporting the local community, building the local community, filling the gaps because Minneapolis, you know, at, at, at the peak rave scene, we were getting for our big parties, 2000 people for a, a nice big rave for our, you know, at some point there was a few years where you could count on six, seven, eight hundred people was kind of the maximum you could count on. Then it really like went terrible when clubs started playing house and techno in the city and we were getting like two, three hundred people to events. And now it's when back was up that? to... Let me, sorry, let me ask you. When, yeah, I would say like early, early, early 2000s, um, everything went into the clubs and it became such shit <laughs> uh, because again, clubs closed at 2 a.m., Every club in the DJ, re or every every club in the city, was like, "Oh, there's a hundred DJs now. I can book DJs and pay them no money, and and they'll be happy to do it for drink tickets." And so suddenly there were club, there were DJ nights on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You know, all across the city. And I think the the value of DJing and electronic music just kind of suffered. And uh, Luckily, techno didn't work so well in a lot of those venues, so techno was forced to stay in the warehouses, which now the techno scene in Minneapolis is actually the strongest scene because it stayed authentic longer than the other scenes. Like the house scene used to be the biggest scene in Minneapolis. It, it ruled them all. But the house scene kind of sold out to the small Wednesday night gigs, Thursday night gigs, and that scene suffered musically because of it. Um yeah. So, I mean, yeah, over the years, it's just, yeah, throwing different parties, small, big headliners, not headliners, you know, different venues as they popped up or as they disappeared or illegal spots as they popped up. You know, we've always kind of had, um, we were able to get away with a lot in Minneapolis. We had connections with cops. We had connections with city people. We could kind of get, go under the radar as long as we followed certain rules and yeah. We were able to pull it off. I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of fun. Oh yeah, to be fair, hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, I, but that's also like why I understand that. Like, it, it, where was I recently? I showed up somewhere to one of my gigs recently, and I was like pushing speakers, came down with the guys, set up the monitors, 
And they were like, man, you're like the only artist who would do this. I'm like, really? I'm like, this is normal. To me. <laughs> this, this, this is, this is what I do for all these years. Um, not saying that I want to all the time and I don't do it all the time, but to me, this is normal because I come from throwing parties. You know, I, I've had to clean the toilet in the middle of the night at my own party. I've had to go grab ice, take out, take out garbage, uh, go fix something, pop the circuits back on when the power drops. Like once you do all those things, you kind of learn to appreciate all the facets of, of what is, of what are happening around you now as a successful DJ. Like there's a lot more that goes into the night than just me showing up, plugging in my USB stick and playing a couple tracks. Like there's a lot of preparation <laughs> that got to that moment that had nothing to do with me. And maybe I can help them if I happen to be nearby and they want some input. If I have the energy to do it, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I mean, and if, if it feels natural, then then you just do something, right? You don't think about it. You just do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, like I was helping these guys tune their sound system and they're like, oh, can't believe you're doing this. I'm like, well, I'm going to play yeah, on this later. Exactly, I want it to sound right, good. Yeah. You I know? do have an interest in this. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, my agent and I have talked about this a lot too. Like I'm very specific in my writers about how I want the lights, how I want the the booth, how I want the sound. And some promoters are like, wow, man, you, you really ask a lot. I'm like, yeah, but I don't ask for champagne and, and other, you know, stupid things. I ask for the experience to be the best possible experience it can be for me and for the crowd. And I'll show up to places and like, I'll see a light bulb on that's like in the view of everyone in the crowd. And I'm like, hey, can you turn that light bulb off? And they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. Has nobody ever said that to you? And they're like, no, I'm like, cool, turn that light bulb off. And oh yeah, your lights, can you dim them to like 50% of what they are right now? And they're like, okay. And I go talk to the lighting guy and I'm like, hey man, I'm playing after this person. Can you do me a favor? Like cut this shit back about 50%, fog out the room and just make it comfortable. And then I'll come back to my agent. They'll be like, how was the night? I'm like, it was amazing. And they're like, oh, well, you know, DJ so-and-so played there two months ago and had a really different experience. I'm like, well, what did they say? Well, they came back and complained that the lights were too bright, <clears throat> that the crowd wasn't really into it, that they could see everyone. And I'm like, well, did they ask to turn off the lights? They're like, no. I'm like, well, then why are they complaining? Because... Yeah, I mean, I've absolutely resonated. So I've had so many experiences like that too. Like, I mean, the classic one for me is like when you've got a... Um, a light that's lighting up the mixer, but which is visible to the crowd. I'm just like, turn that fucking thing off immediately, right? Because I don't, I mean, I can fool my way around a mixer. It's okay if it's a bit dark, but it just looks fucking dumb to everyone else. It's just killing the vibe, you know? It's killing the vibe. And also like it disconnects, like same, like, uh, yeah, same thing. Like if the lights on the dance floor are blinking and strobing and doing stuff, but there's this steady light on the mixer and on you, you're completely disconnected from the vibe of the lighting of the dance floor. And like, I tell these people, like, I want to feel like I'm in it, in the music, sonically and vibe wise, so that I can have a similar experience to what the crowd is having, because that's the experience I want to project or be in the middle of. And so I don't feel bad when these artists complain about their experience, but don't do anything to change it. Like you have the power to ask for something. You have the power to say, turn that shit off or turn that up or change this. And if you don't do that, then don't complain about it afterwards because at least try to make the experience better. At least uh, try to imagine a vision of what you would want if you were on the other side on the dance floor experiencing your DJ set. Yeah, completely. 
So, I mean, do you see yourself as, well, okay, so we haven't talked about your production at all. And actually, I went back and listened to your first ever release today. And it's, I have to say, it's fucking great. Um, the one on Enemy Thanks. Records. No, gen- genuinely, <laughs> I was like, I wonder what his first release sounds like. I've never, never heard it before. It's fucking brilliant. Like, all three tracks are great. I was like, wow, okay, fucking decent. Thank decent. you, man. But, but do you see yourself, but, but that release was from 2009. So that came relatively late in your, your journey here. Right. So how do you see yourself in the kind of, you know, do you see yourself as a DJ first? It sounds like you said, it sounds like you see yourself as someone 100%. who, yeah, DJing. Is that it? I'm a DJ. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a DJ. I'm a DJ first. And I learned to produce throughout the course of my DJing. I, I tried gear. I tried programs. I tried this. I tried that. But my, my heart was always in digging for music and finding music and playing it. And I learned to be a producer and and I can't deny the fact that my production is what opened the door for me to come and become the DJ that I'm known to be. Um, But I made it very clear early on. And it was funny because a lot of our colleagues and fellow artists were like, Zach, you got to put out more music. You have to do this. You have to do this. And I was like, no, I don't. I'm not a, I'm not a producer. I'll release music when I feel like it, but I'm going to say in every damn interview that I'm not a producer. I'm a DJ. And I kept saying that and repeating it over and over in every first interview for the first couple of years that I did when they're like, Oh, let's talk about your production. I'm like, no, I'm a DJ. And I took away that, that feeling of like, I have to release music just to keep my DJ career going, which kind of leads back to our first comments an hour, 45 minutes ago about why should a producer have to be a DJ? Same thing. Why should a DJ have to be a producer? You know, uh, to me, those things should exist in and be able to, I mean, for some people they can do both. Don't get me wrong, but somebody like me should not have to have the pressure because I do think that I am, I've put in my hours to become, you know, good at what I do as a DJ. I know how to, describe my emotions i know how to tell a story i think i can play deep i can play slow i can play this genre that genre i'm a, I'm a in my definition i am what a dj should be um and i'm not trying to say that egotistically or pat myself on the back but i've put but i've put in the hours i've put in the time i do find an interest in producing and i wish i had more time because a slice takes all my time. I haven't produced anything in almost two years. I haven't even turned on my studio computer since the Axis album. Um, but my priority is to be a DJ. And when I go out on the weekends right now and I get to play tracks, that's where my heart is. Yeah, I mean, like the, the I, I wasn't just sort of I, I wasn't just trying to draw the distinction between uh, production and DJing actually, because the, the way you were talking about throwing parties. It was really reminiscent, actually, of the conversation I had with with David Moalem the other week, and and he yeah. was talking about you know the, how how seriously he takes the just the creation of the experience for the people attending. Yeah, and it really sounded like you. I got a very similar vibe from what you were saying about the parties that you you threw or continue to throw. I mean, I, I still I still throw a party without going into too much detail because it's very private. Um, but I still throw an underground party in Minneapolis three times a year. I have a secret space. I've been doing parties there for 13, 14 years. I've tailored that space for the experience. Like, it has grown over the years. It's got an amazing sound system in it, amazing lighting rig in there that I've built up over the years of owning gear. 
And I keep making the space better and better and better for the experience for people. And I literally walk around the space when I throw my party and I have my phone out to my note page and I look around and as I see something that could be better, I make a note of it. I'm like, turn that light off. Same thing. Put a sign here. Uh, dim this light. Put another fan over in the corner over there. Uh, put another bench over here. These subtle details that like when I see like we don't the secret party, we tell people don't talk about it online. So nobody does. But I get these emails from people. They're like, I can feel what you've put into this space. Like you've tailored it so that I can have the best experience I've ever had. And they're like, and you're getting it. Like I'm having my best experiences in your warehouse. And so I understand without even hearing what David said, like it's something about creating that experience that we're chasing probably the experience we had that blew our mind. And we're trying to create that for the next person who walks into, you know, Blitz in Munich to his club or walks into my party or even walks into one of my DJ sets. And it's just like, holy shit, I just took it on to another level. Uh, not me, but the person experiencing it. And like, if I can create that, I remember that feeling. Like, and I still sometimes have that feeling on a magical night. Like, Oh my God, I did not expect that. Um, that's a beautiful thing. Like to be able to experience those things, it, it, that's not to get all emotional and, and hippie-ish, but like, yeah, like it's such a powerful thing to have a life's changing experience on a dance floor. It, it's really next level. Yeah. No, it is. It is literally life changing. Um, I've, I've certainly had my life changed by those experiences. Absolutely. I mean, you and I are you and I are ultimately sitting here talking because we had that experience because it changed our life because it brought us to this music and kept us in it to the point where like this became our life, you know, one way or the other, this became our life. And literally you and I wouldn't be talking because we wouldn't even know each other had this not brought us into this community. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Well, this has been great, man. I got one more to throw at you. And please. Um, so, yeah, just give me a few of your favorite venues then things we've been talking about venues and experiences give, give me a few maybe some maybe a couple of current ones and a couple of historic ones i mean selfishly uh my my secret party that that's like i feel at home i, I, I <laughs> okay. built well, but yeah, but no, i built i built <laughs> i built the, i built the booth <laughs> i built the venue i built the everything in there so like I, I that's that's my home um you know i've been playing at bergheim for so many years uh there's still something magical in there uh it's changed over the years and it moves and it shuffles and people have their opinions and they have their expectations and even i do as well and you know i've had a couple nights that were off in there uh i wasn't in tune with the crowd or the sound or something else but i will say for the amount of times i've played in that venue the amount of times that magic has been created is unlike anywhere else for me um you know, I have a deep connection with the Bassiani guys. Uh, I'm one of their residents. Playing at Bassiani is very magical for me because of my connection there. Um, you know, favorite venues. There's a crew in South Africa that run a club called Ann Club. Uh, really amazing crew in Johannesburg. Uh, their club is just awesome. I don't know why, how. It's one of those things where you expected it to be good, but like I had a magical connection with them. Um you know, I got to play in Tokyo at the old Club 11. Uh, that was amazing. Um, you know, I've gotten to play some really cool, like under club in Buenos Aires, you know, like same thing. The 
aesthetically, when the lights go on, you look around, you're like, okay, this room is pretty basic. The lights are pretty basic. The sound is okay. But there's magic in that room. Like, even when before they upgraded their sound and it was shitty as hell and the monitors were terrible, it, it created magic. And I've always tried to tell people, like, on paper, you could have the everything the best. You could have the best sound, the best lights, the best this, the best. And it could be the shittiest party in the world. Doesn't matter. You could walk into the rawest venue with the worst technical everything, and it could literally be the greatest gig of your life. Um, so there's so many elements to create that magic, you know, and some of that's the intention of the people coming, the intention of the people putting it on, the the, the musical experience, the, you know, everything, the temperature in the room, uh, the sweat dripping off the walls. There's like that perfect formula that you can't quite put in writing. You just, it just happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thanks for doing it, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Yeah, that was DVS1. And what an interesting conversation. What an interesting guy. He's done loads and loads of stuff down the years, some of which was news to me. I was aware of his history in Minneapolis, but I didn't know much of a detail of his way in and the parties that he promotes and all that stuff. So yeah, it was a illuminating conversation for me. And of course, the ASLI stuff is super important, as I said at the top of the show. I think it's an incredible thing they're doing. And if you're a DJ, then I really, really advise you, I urge you to start donating, I don't know, 5% of your DJ fee as a habit to that system. And if you're a producer, then you should definitely sign up to it too, because you can get paid, right? So 100% do that. Hit the link in the show notes and get signed up, get contributing and get collecting if you're a producer whose music is being played. So yeah, great stuff. Okay, no podcast next week. We're taking one week break. If you're a patron, then there will be stuff in your feed. If you want to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official is the way to do it. Get over there. There's two different tiers. They're both reasonably priced. And we would be extraordinarily grateful if you found it in the kindness of your heart to support us in that kind of a way. So I'm going to shut up. I'll be back in two weeks. Hold tight till then. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you then back here for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.